Sweet Children's Book Lovers. After a brief winter hibernation, the Library Girl and Book Boy podcast is back. And today I am interviewing Sylvia Bishop about her book, The Trouble in New York, which is published by Scholastic. And we have some pupil book reviews from a brand new school. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back. everyone and welcome to the podcast. Today I am chatting to author Sylvia Bishop about her new book Trouble in New York which is out with Scholastic and has a rather wonderful front cover by Marco Guadalupe. Hi there Sylvia. Hello. Hello thank you for talking to us this evening. Oh thank you for having me on. My pleasure. So can we get started with you telling us a little bit about what the story is all about? Sure. Uh, So Trouble in New York is the story of a paper boy called Jamie Creedon who desperately wants to be a reporter. He's running his own local paper uh, and he gets a chance to visit the headquarters of his hero's newspaper, the one that he delivers. Um, While he's there, he meets a very lazy journalist and ends up taking over a scoop. And by the time he's realised how much trouble he's in, it's too late to back out. (laughs) Uh, And so he's got to push his way through and get his front page. Um, it's difficult to talk about the themes it ends up being about without spoilers, but I guess it ended up being about values in journalism and, and what reporters should be aiming to do in a way I kind of hadn't expected when I set out. Uh, and it's just an exploration of the, the kind of rule of the great print dailies from another time, um, which I've got a real soft spot for. So, yeah, it's about news and reporting and why we do it. Lovely. Thank you. So um, you mentioned kind of newspaper reporting in another era and this is um set in the 1960s and i was wondering what came first was it the 1960s time period or was it the kind of journalistic theme that you wanted to explore ah um it was definitely the theme and i know that because um i was on a wild goose chase for a while trying to find out when there were no longer paper boys in new york um because they're originally going to be more modern. There definitely weren't paper boys by like the mid 80s. Okay. Um, I can't tell you exactly when it ended, but I know that I was safe with 1969. <laughs> um, and then once I started penning that down, I was also looking at, you know, when newspapers would have been still very powerful, but starting to struggle. And all, so that kind of narrowed down the time period for me. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. I like that. And what was it about the journalistic theme that really appealed to you? Um. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I have a politics background, um, politics degree, so I'm uh, very into kind of current affairs. I've got friends who are journalists and that world definitely just appeals to me as an adult on, on a particular level. Um, I think when I'm picking themes for books, I'm always looking for things that excite me now. So I'm happy to spend months reading about them and thinking about them, but that also overlap with um, strong memories of kind of excitement and emotion from the age of my readership. Um, I've got quite vivid memories of my primary school years, which is useful. And I really remember the days when I would go into my dad's office, um, like during the school holidays. I'm sure it was just like babysitting desperation. But at the time, it was billed as a treat. Uh, And I would be allowed to like swivel on his swivel chair and play with his computer. And he works with odd coins. So I'd put coins in packets. I'm pretty sure now that was useless. Um, But... (laughs) I when I started reading about what was in newspaper offices in the 60s um, and the amazing technology of the time, I just really remembered that feeling um, and the idea of this kind of world of work as this playground uh, 
and this would be an incredible playground because they had things we don't think about anymore. They had telex machines and linotype machines and pneumatic tubes running between the floors um, so yes. you could send each other post and just all this wonderful forgotten technology, typewriters, of course. Uh, and so as soon as I started reading about that, I knew that that is a world I would have liked to imagine playing around inside at that age. Uh, so I thought it would be a fun one to write in. Yeah, definitely. So we've just touched on my next question a bit already. I wanted to know all your books previously, they've all had kind of very different kind of themes and settings. I know that mm. you said what drew you to um, the journalistic theme this time around, but how, how does your inspiration tend to strike? How do you pick what you're going to write about next? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, I can think of one um, one thing that attracted me to this theme this time around I'm not sure if I have a more general theory of um, <laughs> what of how I pick stuff uh, a lot of my favorite children's books really evoke the sense of a place being very magical that I remember quite strongly from being a kid so um it could kind of be anywhere there was a cleaning cupboard in my grand's house um, or my tent or uh, the back of taxis was a real thing because I never they were a treat where, where just being there was sort of unbearably magical um and I think some of my favorite children's literature really taps into that um I think Francis Hodgson Burnett is the example I always give where you just wanted to live in Sarah's horrible attic uh or be in that kind of dead garden <laughs> and she somehow made them these incredibly magical places uh I think the books that really evoke the magic of place are often uh, writing in quite an old-fashioned setting or uh, a nature setting uh, and I've been playing around with the idea I was curious if it was possible to do that with like a post-war modern urban setting um, I don't know if my description of the emotion I mean is making sense to you yes no keep, yeah. thank you doing um, so I was yeah I just I wanted to see if you could do for streetlights and the grid system what um, we often do for kind of oil lamps and firesides and and forests yeah. uh so it had in my head for a while that I wanted to do urban and then my best friend moved to New York uh, and I went to visit her and I fell in love with New York so that was that um so yeah the place kind of came from there and I've talked a bit about the theme but if I had a more general idea where good story ideas come from I would use it more often <laughs> <laughs> the answers on a postcard yeah should be very rich if you had yeah. a reliable source yeah absolutely Brilliant, thank you. So I want to talk a bit more about your main character, Jamie, who dreams yes. of being a, an ace reporter. Um, mm. He doesn't have it very easy at home because his mum is busy working several jobs to keep things afloat. And I was just wondering why you chose that as his family background. Mm. Um, yeah, so to give readers, uh, sorry, listeners, <laughs> so used to readers. <laughs> readers uh, and listeners. Yeah, readers and listeners. Uh, a bit of context. We don't spend much time in Jamie's home in the book. Um, you just know fairly early on that the reason he's never really seeing his mum is because she's got a job that's early in the morning and a job that's late at night. Um, and then that's pretty much it. He's off out on his bike. Mm. Uh, and that started as a classic children's writer's problem of how do we get rid of the parents? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've already written a couple of stories with criminally negligent parents. And I didn't want to do that to Jamie. He's this kind of sparky, confident little boy who you just feel comes from a home that loves him. Um, but every time I tried to write in the awkward conversations with his mother where she says, how was your day? And he has to lie and then feel bad about lying and all that. It just uh, really slowed things down and there just wasn't room for it. Um, so that line about her having a couple of jobs went in for that reason. It then did kind of fit into the story and help 
because it made Jamie an unlikely contender for the world of journalists that he wanted to join. Um, and I think it was very useful to have a character who was at arm's length from that world, just because as I started to get to that stage of the story and write that bit, it hit me that, I mean, we're talking pretty much no women. In some reporting firms, it was actually a rule that the women could only be hired as researchers. Um, obviously, New York's still very racist. Uh, and I was presented with, do I present this world without comment? Um, or do I pretend that wasn't the case and, and write it differently for the sake of sort of positive representation for children reading it? Mm -hmm. um, and that was all a bit tricky. So it's quite useful having a character who was at arm's length from that world, which allowed me to kind of satirize it a bit and have him see himself as an outsider as well. And um, the reporters all end up being very matching and they've all got matching shiny shoes and matching shiny hair and their names all rhyme. Uh, which I think having having Jamie be removed from their world by his class made that more convincingly from his perspective uh, than there would have been scope for if he'd been a bit more middle class. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Now, Jamie gets himself very rapidly into quite a lot of serious situations. Mm -hmm. Follows follows his leads and there were so many really funny and really gripping scenes what was your favorite scene to write and why <sighs> um so the one that ended up being my favorite is probably the one that I had the most trouble trouble with and maybe it was only my favorite because it was such a victory to finally get it right <laughs> um which is the scene he gets captured by a, a sort of general thug called Vinny um, and driven through New York in the back of his car uh, and I'd had so much trouble with the scene because so the way I think about characters I got from um, my background in improvised comedy and in improvised comedy we talk about you don't make jokes you give every character a game and that your character keeps trying to play that game no matter what else happens so this could be something really general like they're trying to be the best person in the room at all times or it could be really specific, like they keep trying to open the tin of beans no matter what else happens. <laughs> and so whenever I introduce a new character, like I'm trying to work out what their game is. And I tried so many games for Vinny and none of them were working. I, it got really desperate. I had him like driving in reverse the whole time and like really stupid things. And I got very fed up with it. And I was like, okay, he's a stupid, tough guy. I'm going to try a version where he's just the most stupid, most tough guy I can possibly make him. And that's all there is to him. Um, and it turns out that that is very fun. <laughs> uh, so he's just sort of slowly breaking the car more and more as they drive along. He um, punches out his own horn when he's trying to beep out the people on the road. So he has to just start yelling honk out the window at people. And um, everyone who passes sort of ends up falling over into a bin or running into a tree or whatever so he's just ca causing havoc wherever he goes um and it was such a delight to finally find that something so stupid and straightforward could be so fun <laughs> that i think that was probably my favorite in the end you can't beat a good bit of slapstick comedy right sometimes you can, it's got to stop being clever <laughs> yeah uh, yeah okay so you said that you found it quite difficult to begin with so what was mm. your um would it also be your least favourite scene to have written to begin with? Or is there another scene that was really tricky? Least favourite scene? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was a tricky scene. I think the other tricky scene was introducing... Um, he gets to know another reporter, a TV reporter called Cindy Bell. Um, 
and it was just getting to the point in the story where the clues I think the, di- the danger with a mystery is always that your clues are going to start to feel very and then and then and then and then and then because it's just a series of logical clues that have to happen yeah. um, and you lose the shape of it as a story as an emotional story at the same time um, and kind of wherever I had him meet Cindy it it just felt like a, a, another and then on the on the treadmill um, mm-hmm. and it only worked when I took him back home for that meeting and she was in his house so that then it was this sort of escalation of of the sense of danger and um, vulnerability that until now his house has been kind of this safe space and this time he comes back and there's someone in it um so that one took a while to work out how to how to make it part of the story instead of just an add-on does that make sense it does yes and then and then is a classic um children's writing problem once you discover (laughs) they can use conjunctions everything is and then and then and then so Mm -hmm. it's hard it's very natural i think to want to fall into that trap isn't it when you're writing yeah and very hard when it's a mystery because you do just have these competing aims um where there's a lot of stuff that just has to happen so that at the reveal people will say oh yes i see now yeah but it doesn't necessarily have to happen from the point of view of the story there's no emotional reason it needs to happen it's not in itself exciting um, and so you're constantly kind of juggling those two things. Yeah. Ah, okay, thank you. So when you plot your stories, I know some people fall into the camp of plotting out every chapter and they know what's going to happen right from the beginning. Some mm. people just have an end point or a middle. Do you have a kind of typical way that you work or does it vary depending on what you're writing? I have a lot of tension over this. <laughs> and it is a work in progress. Um so I, I mentioned briefly that my background is improvised comedy um, and improvisers have a lot to say about this. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, improvised comedy is just going on stage and, and making things up. Uh, it was kind of made famous by Whose Line Is It Anyway? But if you go see it in theatre, people will often make up kind of hour-long plays rather than just doing those little games. Um, and the improv school of thought is very much that you should never think about the end and you should never try and plan ahead. Um for two reasons. One is this thought that that is using the wrong part of your brain for creativity. It's sort of very prefrontal cortex. You're trying to solve a problem um, and that nobody has creative ideas by trying to get the right answer. Um, And the second thought is that uh, if you, as one teacher puts it, get eaten by the plot monster, uh, then you forget to have any fun and you forget (laughs) to surprise yourself. Um, And I do think there is a lot to be said for that. And when I was still at sort of second book stage I was very like militantly not a planner the trouble is that while you will tell a story that way you might not really tell a story you feel was worth telling <laughs> um, of all the stories there are in the world that could be told uh, and so I do increasingly find I want to plan otherwise you've got to write a hundred stories before you feel like any of them are a good ones that you really you're really proud of um so I went away, I read a load of the sort of hero's journey um, and also screenwriting books. Screenwriting books are much better for plot than novel writing books. Yeah. And now it's this kind of uh, iterative back and forth between the two, I guess, where I try and have the bones of a plot ready. So I know, I know I'm not going to go off track, but then I try and leave enough of it empty that I can have fun sort of discovering things, the old kind of improv way in between. Yeah. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out the balance between those two because I do find it very hard to be creative and fun if I'm also trying to solve plot problems 
with a kind of analytic head. I should stop writing mysteries, is the conclusion. <laughs> They're hard. <laughs> they are hard, for exactly that reason. Um, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've not made up my mind. I'm awkwardly on the fence. That is awkward. So do you find then, I was talking to somebody recently who had finished the book and was at the point of editing, and then they had a vision one night late into the editing process, and they then basically completely rewrote a whole thread of their plot which I thought was a pretty bold thing mm. to do um, but it, it was definitely worth it but do mm. you find then that when you go back and edit you have a lot of things that have occurred to you in the meantime that you change or is it more the technical stuff you're editing for rather than um, the plot um, so yes I know so sort of um, preface I edit a lot as I go along and by the time I've written the words, the end, I'm relatively f close to the version uh, that is the end. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's because I'm just constantly tearing things up as I go. It takes months just to get the first kind of four chapters down. Um, so, yes, to the, to the overall sentiment, but I tend to do it in stages. Um, I do. And I think it's really important to hold everything about your plot very lightly and accept that things that seem really central uh, might go and often it takes surprisingly little work to do what sounds like a very grand change to the plot um so yes things get radically revised along the way for sure thank you so that brings me on very nicely to my last question Ooh. is there anything that you can tell us about any current or future projects that you are working on or any new releases in the pipeline over the next year that we can look out for ah uh, um I can say, I never know what I am and I'm not allowed to say. So I, know, I can right. confidently say that I have a younger um, release and an older release coming out over the next year. Uh, that I'm working on the older one now. How specific can I be? I, I'll, it's Aesthetically, it's the opposite of Trouble in New York. It's another mystery, another kind of adventure mystery. But whereas Trouble in New York was all kind of bright lights and boy on a bicycle and wide open streets. Uh, this is very much kind of nighttime and shadows and old greystone buildings and secrets. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's quite a nice contrast for me to be working yeah. on. Yeah. That sounds very exciting. And these are all due for publication in the next year, are they? Yes. Yeah. Exciting. Thank you, Ashley. Mm. Um, but that brings me to the end of my questions and the oh. end of that. So thank you so much for answering everything for me. Thank you. And for giving up your time this evening. And it's time for me to say good night. Okay. Oh, good night. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This term, I'm joined by a brand new team of pupil reviewers from Glenbrook Primary School in Nottingham. They've reviewed three books for us today. The Brownest Mouse in Town by Christine Kodihi, illustrated by Tara L. Gear, and that's from Owlet Press. A very small publisher, but loads of excellent titles. We've also got Fair Shares by Pippa Goodhart and Anna Doherty. And that is from Tiny Owl Publishers, a fantastic, small, diverse publishing company. And I've also got a review of a chapter book called The Last Human by Lee Bacon. And that is published by Piccadilly Press. Let's find out what our reviewers have to say. This book is this book is called Brownest Mouse in Time, Town by Chris, Christine Cuddy and Tara L. Gear. 
what happened. First, there's a mum and a dad and a son that goes to the polka dot pet shop just down the street. And it has colourful creatures you'll be dying to meet. My favourite part was when they called the guinea pigs look like million dollars. My score was 10 is about 9. The book I've been reading is called Fair Shares by Pippa Goodhart and Anna Dockery. First, there was a hare and a bear. The hare tried to jump and jump and jump to try and catch the pears. Then he saw a bear, but the bear couldn't reach the pears either. So they both got chairs each. They had, so the hare had two, then the hare, and then the bear had one. But the bear said it was not fair, but it was because the hare is too small. My favourite bit was when the bug ate all the chairs. He said, what do you like? The title of this book is The Last Human and who it's by is Lee Bacon. What I liked about this book is when the robots and Emma, the human, first when they first met, because it was quite funny when um, the robots were quite nervous and disliked her. And then um, what I, well, I didn't really like, I didn't like, Oh, I don't know what to say. Didn't dislike. I didn't dislike um, anything because um, I thought this book was very fun. And what I'd score it out of 10 is probably um, a 9 because I sometimes, um, like, I don't I don't really dis dislike it, but, like, I would score it a 9 out of 10 because like, I don't like it fully. And then what I recommend it to is to Year 5 and Year 6. If you'd like to read more reviews, get recommendations or enter giveaways, make sure that you visit my blog www.librarygirlandbookboy.wordpress.com or you can find me on Twitter a lot as at booksuperhero2 and the same on Instagram or if you prefer to be old school and are on Facebook, you can find the Library Girl and Book Boy Facebook page. Make sure you join me. Well, that's all folks i hope you've enjoyed the first library girl and book boy podcast episode of 2020 make sure you tune in for the next one because i'm chatting with author claire barker about her brilliant pickle witch series and lots else as well make sure that you don't miss out remember to subscribe so you get alerts when the next episode's available take care talk with you soon